Hey there, Ultra Cuties. It's your hostess with the leastest, Madeline. Currently, it's almost 3 a.m. Pacific on September 6th, 2023. During the exporting of Episode 3, which covers Episode 5 and 6 of Ultra Q, I made the mistake of selecting last week's audio, which covers Episodes 3 and 4, in my file explorer. Because of this, I accidentally recorded over my audio for episode 2 with a dupe of my audio for episode 3. After thinking on it, I decided to flip the order of the episodes in interest of staying on schedule. Luckily, the wind-up on episodes is two weeks in advance and I'd actually wrapped episode 3 on Friday because Preston's audio was delayed. Folks, podcasting is hard. But you know what isn't hard? Sitting back and listening to us talk you through two tokusatsu classics. Sit back, relax, and let's dig into Pegila's here and grow up, little turtle. Then, we'll see you back here in two weeks for the gift from space and my personal favorite so far, Mammoth Flower. See you then. intro this we haven't figured that out yet um hello ultra cuties hello hello ultra cuties that's what we're gonna do we're gonna do it watch this hello ultra cuties welcome back to uh ultra cuties i'm your hostess madeline mads maddie blondo host hostess does it really matter which one who's with me who's joining me the nostalgia critic no, I mean, oh, me. I'm no. not gonna do it again. I'm not gonna do it again. No, I did that last episode. We can't, we can't, go, back. We can't go 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 back. Oh, it's me, Preston. Hooray! Hi, Preston. How are you? Um, I went to uh the, the downtown cow town at Fort That's Worth. Awesome. That's exciting. Why don't you tell real me a place. Bit about it? I want to hear. Um, it's <laughs> love the name. And uh, I went to the ISIS theater to go to an uh, event called Kaiju Go. Okay, okay. It was a uh, That's cool. double screening of Mothra versus Godzilla and Godzilla versus Megalon. And uh, it, it was awesome. It was one of the best theater experiences I've had in a long time. Uh, everyone clapped and cheered throughout the whole movies. Like, it was just fantastic. Uh, Bob Eggleton was there. Um, if you're not familiar with Bob Eggleton, he did a lot. He does a lot of the paintings of Godzilla that people see in like picture books and comics. Uh, if you ever see a, yeah, if you ever see a painted Godzilla, it's usually Bob Eggleton. Um, and it was it was awesome. It was a great experience. I uh, I they're talking about doing it again next year, and I am really looking forward to it. Um, I think my one complaint was it was the seating. It's, it's, so it's this old theater called the ISIS theater that, uh, got torn down and then renovated. And, uh, those seats feel like old timey seats. Do you know what I'm talking about in old theaters? Oh, Oh, no, I know exactly what you mean. That was probably my one complaint. There was not enough leg room. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm six three. I'm not short. And uh, 
it was it was a pain to get in and out of the of the seats every now and then. No, it was awesome. Like going and watching people clap during the event and like I I know I know it's not everyone wants that like audience experience, but there's something so rewarding about Going in and people clapping, oh, yeah. Godzilla shows up. Clapping when you know Godzilla does his tail slide across the landscape to hit Megalon. Like, there's something so fun about being in an audience that is so mm-hmm. vibrant and alive and appreciating what you're watching. And I don't, I'm I'm thinking about the the time I went and saw Godzilla again. I like it was comparing it to seeing uh, Return of Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Biollante, which I really enjoyed that experience at Alamo Draft House. But it was such a different audience, and it felt like some of the people were there just to laugh, just kind of go, "Haha, funny, funny, goofy Japanese movie," and. That didn't get that vibe from this audience. It was an audience that genuinely wanted to be there, genuinely loved Godzilla, and like wanted to 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 cheer and clap and be be a part of the 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 experience, as it were. And yeah, and I think that like there is a time and place for that. And I think that like people can get very didactic about it. Like they're like, "Oh, you shouldn't do this. This is annoying. This is quote unquote cringe." First of all, I'd rather be cringe than be a dick. Second of all, <clears throat> I like we need we need to clear the air there. We're 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 pro cringe on this podcast. Uh, second of pro all, pro cringe. You know, if you if you're seeing a if you're seeing a god if you're seeing a Godzilla movie that hasn't been in in theaters for years and you're seeing it with a bunch of people who you know weren't alive when it was in theaters or weren't in the country that the movie you know hailed from japan i said the, the movie that the country the movie hailed from it, it's from japan um you <laughs> of course you're gonna clap of course you're gonna cheer we didn't get to have this experience i am um, there's a local repertory theater that's kind of like the big one in portland um hollywood theater and <clears throat> Next month, they're actually doing their own Godzilla-thon. They're doing Ghidorah, Mothra versus Godzilla, Invasion of Astro Monster, and Godzilla versus Hedorah over the course of, oh. of two days. And those are, you know, if you're, a, if you're a Godzilla fan, which you probably are if you're listening to this, you know those are all certified bangers. And the Hollywood crowd can sometimes get a little uh, participatory, a little loud, a little verbal. And sometimes I think that it's unearned and it makes me walk out of a screening early and sometimes it's really fun and usually the crowd who turns up for Godzilla makes it really fun. So I uh, I can't wait to have that and I'm really glad you got to have that over the weekend. That sounds like it was a really kind of just rewarding experience because Hollywood's like ISIS and that is a, also a historical theater that's undergone a number of renovations but has sort of been around for decades. So it's really cool that you have one of those. Yeah, no, it was awesome. Um, I think the 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 well in this with was it was kind of wild walking out of the theater and you know we're all dressed in our Godzilla shirts and everybody's you know like tatted or pierced or whatever and you know walk out and it's just to see if people in cowboy hats par hopping because we're in the bar district of the downtown cowtown and I was like oh it's literally the downtown cowtown the cowtown part is not a there's no jokes about it. There's These no are irony. all cowboys. There's no irony there. No jokes, all. only folks. Oh my gosh, it was so funny, and just people eyeing us, and we're eyeing them. We're like, "What's going on?" It's like 
rival gangs running into each other. (laughs) 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 Exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, hey, I'm really glad that you got to do that um, over over the weekend. And I will win. I go to the Hollywood Godzilla-thon. Of course, report back similarly. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for recounting that. I appreciate that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So before we get into it, I wanted to kind of uh, have a little addendum to last episode because last episode we discussed Mammoth Flower, which if you'll recall, who's one of our favorite episodes so far, and you'll see in this episode that that holds true. However, we talked about the specific cracking effect that was accomplished in that episode and how in a Tokusatsu episode or a Tokusatsu movie or an episode, especially in the old school the idea was you were focusing on like one or two central like effects. Like these were the big things that we're going to show repeat shots of to drive home the fact that we made this and you're going to look at it. And in Mammoth Flower, those were the cracks in the wall. Wouldn't you agree, Preston? Oh, for sure. Yeah, like aside from the central threat, the big recurrent imagery through that are these spreading cracks. And now I would have to go through and look at the etymology of like stop motion effects and see if there were earlier tokusatsu things that did that before that Ultra Q episode. However, it seemed like such a center thing, a center, a center point, a center focus that like that was one of the earliest examples of that so recently i watched this movie called haunted turkish bathhouse or black hat uh, black hat black cat turkish bathhouse it's a pinku movie from the early 70s and it is about a woman who gets married to a man that sells her into sexual slavery she is tortured by and, and sexually assaulted by the yakuza this takes place in 1958 when uh, Kishi has come into power, so it was a little bit of a political bent to what's going on here. Uh, it's sort of a commentary on what happened leading up to and under Kishi. And the way this all culminates is this one woman conspires with the abusive man who has been conspiring with all the other abusive men to kill this woman and put her in the wall of the bathhouse. And Near the end of the movie, the vengeful, her vengeful spirit fused with this cat, this all-knowing black cat, which is a recurrent kind of motif in a lot of Japanese horror literature. Uh, their souls, their beings, their essences kind of fuse, and they become this, like, creature of revenge. And what happens, Preston, when she bursts out of the wall is a, a human outline made out of blood appears. It's red. And then cracks start spreading all across it. And as soon as the cracks started spreading, I like sat upright in my chair or my couch. I just like b- like had my hands on my head. I'm like, oh my God, mammoth flower. It's literally the mammoth flower cracks. Because we had this conversation, Preston. We were like, this was an influential episode. And we kept talking about how influential it was. And we didn't really, we stated some influences, but we didn't nail any down. There it is. That's an influence. And that is one of the most important Pinku movies I have come to determine. Like, that is something that I, I see a lot of my friends who are really into Pinku really, really like Haunted Turkish, uh, Haunted Turkish Bathhouse. And so you already see less than a decade later the effects that are being pioneered in Ultra Q sort of proliferating back into the film industry. And I think that is fascinating. I just wanted to share that. Oh, yeah. And Oh, no, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's actually a segue here, Preston, because there's, throughout the movie, there's this guy and he's getting a nice uh he's getting serviced shall we say by three Mm -hmm. uh sex workers and the soap land and he keeps making a variety of like amusing faces like just kind of like zooming in like the kind of robocop i'd buy that for a dollar style face (laughs) and it's just way more extreme and he is the teacher in an episode 
that we're going to talk about later today on this very episode, episode six. However, we're not talking about episode six first. We have to talk about episode five. But in order to talk about any of this, we have to shift topics and we have to shift into Ultra Q mode. We've caught you up. You know what's up with us. You know what we've been doing, what we've been watching. Preston, how about we get into the nitty gritty and talk about some Ultra Q? All right, let's talk about let's talk about episode five. Pegula is here. Pegging, huh? Pegging, pegging. Eula is here. Pegging Eula. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we said we weren't gonna. Okay, please, please. <laughs> I did it too. I did it. You know, I I was doing the Pegula um last night. It was it was messy. <laughs> We're just just like this episode. We're just Pegula pros over here. <laughs> but uh, oh no! Pegula, 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 Pegula. Um, directed by uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, Pegula, uh, directed by Samaji Nonagase, and the writer is Masahiro Yamada. Preston, tell me a little bit about episode five. Pegula is here. Pegula is here. Uh, Pegula, he's here, starts with our, our reoccurring character, June, who is looking for his friend Masahiro, who's gone... Mi- no, Nomura. Nomura, not Masahiro. Nomura is gone missing. Uh, he goes to the Arctic and finds that he may have gone missing from a monster called Pegula, who can mm-hmm. kind of control the winds with its wings and create gusts. Um, they discover like big that hurricanes. big yeah, and they discover that um, there's a moss that Pegula is weak to, and. They uh, are able to defeat Pegula with the power of this boss. And that's the whole episode. <laughs> and nothing really happens. And it's all right. It's the most all right episode in the history of Ultra Q. It is the most in the middle I, episode. Yeah. No, I, I'm going to have to agree with you there. And I will go one step further and say that this episode, like... I'm not going to call it a disappointment because I think that's a little harsh. But what I will say is that it does not meet the high bar that was set by the one directly before it. And that might not be it. It's not that's no fault of its director. It's no fault of the writer. It's a tough act to follow. But it must be said that this sort of just feels like the thing. But with a big monster that's big instead of something that's burrowed in the ice. Yeah, it kind of does. I didn't think about that. Yeah, you've got your 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 cast of characters that have doubts about the things going on, and right, it's all it's all kind of in this like tundra, and yeah, it, I, I definitely see that. It was, it's an episode that like compared to the the previous four, it just kind of pales in comparison because the previous four yeah, set up I... so much and kind of give you so much. And this one felt yes. very by the numbers. Felt like, uh, felt like uh, your typical atomic horror, ep- like monster of the week movie. It sure did, and I think it's really disappointing too. Because 
and we'll get more into like the episode specifically, but I do want to talk about Masahiro Yamada just really quick because Masahiro Yamada is the writer of one of my absolute favorite Japanese films. Like, and I, this is not just like a, like, this is an established classic that everyone loves, although I think it is kind of coming to be sort of a treasured movie. Uh, Heroic Purgatory. It is a 1970 movie by Yoshishige Yoshida. It is a film that is about his... This guy's wife returns with a lost teenager and a whole bunch of psychosexual drama unfolds from there. And I, uh, I think the less I say about it, the better. And it's one of the most harrowing <sighs> interpersonal dramas I think I've ever seen come out of Japan. Maybe out of any country, frankly. And I think it's really surprising that that writer wrote this episode because you don't see any of that interpersonal drama here. There, it, it, it is attempted, but there is only so much you can do with these characters in the span of 20 minutes before you have to show the monster and wrap it up, I think. Yeah, no. Um, and also the director uh, did co-directing or um, additional directing for uh, Mothra and the Hidden Fortress, the Akira Kurosawa oh. classic. For Hidden Fortress. Wow, that is really surprising. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. And um So there's a pedigree to this episode. Oh, for sure. There's there's a lot of talent behind this episode. It's just it didn't feel like the best. It didn't feel like there was there was it didn't feel creative in the way that past episodes have, in that sense. If that no. makes yeah. No, I no, it does make sense. I agree with you. And I think that it's all the more disappointing when you look at the credits of who is involved and you see that they are capable of doing better and bigger work than this. Especially, you know, you have someone who did additional directing for Kurosawa on my personal favorite Kurosawa movie. Maybe that makes me basic. I He's he's made a lot of great films, but oh, for sure. Hidden Fortress is a you staggering accomplishment, you know? have a favorite Kurosawa film and it not feel like a basic choice yeah they're all they're all kind <laughs> of all. like really good and you know yeah, and everyone yeah, likes like, them <laughs> yeah i i could i could make this case for ron i could make this case for hidden fortress i could make it for seven samurai or for rashomon i love all of these films right mm-hmm. but like the the fact remains you have this guy who's done additional directing with kurosawa and he doesn't he doesn't bring that heat here to the source material and then you have a writer who is capable of sussing out some of the deep socio-political woes of japan at that time and you don't see much of that here there is some subtext i think that maybe if i revisited this there's like a point staring me in the face that i am just completely blind to and you know i really hope that if someone's listening to this who's a big ultra q fan who's like that's my favorite episode and here's why you don't fucking get it please tell me why i don't fucking get it because i I want to get it Um, because as it stands, I feel like this is just sort of a monster of the week episode and that's not bad. And the bread and butter of tokusatsu are monsters of the week or monsters of the year. However, I think for ultra Q to open with this opening salvo of four really firecracker episodes only to go into this, that sort of feels like a reheated rehash of the thing, but with a big monster, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like it, it's weak tea. No, for sure. Um, I, I didn't, I, it did have a moral thing at the end, but the moral thing made no sense. It was like, hey, everything has a kryptonite was kind of the end narrator's 
like kind of thesis of the film or of the episode and i was just like oh okay sure it's yeah exactly it just it sort of feels like a very obvious not moral moral and certainly i think that if you look back at like the etymology of like japanese literature and plays it's like there's that is just a type of ending it's like here is this very pat statement that is like you can cry as much into it as you want to or as little into it as you want to the thing itself existing is the statement right Mm -hmm. and i think if you were to take that moral and really take the episode in good faith i think you could read it as an analog for this whirling unknown fear this thing that we live in the constant shadow of this omnipresent force that is encroaching upon us and blinds our view and makes us unable to see the rest of the world has its own weakness and will Preston, this is about Preston. This is about Colin. Is it Preston? Preston, Preston. Hi. I get what this episode's about. Oh my God! No, do you get it? You get where I'm going with this. I do get where you're going for this. This was live, by the way. Everyone who's who's listening to this, this wasn't like a scripted bit. This was. I, this was a like, live realization. Because if you if you dig deep into enough to it, right, and you know that the writer is like a marginally, nominally like leftist, not like a liberal, but like a leftist writer, mm-hmm. you can sort of look at it as this addressing the fear of America as an omnipresent entity that is now a controlling factor in everyday Japanese life. And it is a reminder through a very, very veiled thing using, by the way, an American film, speaking the language of an American film, the thing, to then make a point about that in a way that is so subtle that stupid American brains cannot get it decades later until they're recording their silly little podcast and stumble into it. That's that's writing. I think maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but do, would you say that that might be what this episode could be about? I mean, everything has a weakness, sure. I, I think that, like you said, it can be, you can read into as much of it as you want or read into as little as you want. I think it can mean a lot of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think regardless of my feelings when we are watching it, I think this is one that like I I might want to go back and reanalyze. So like I almost said viewer, uh, listener, if you're watching along while you're listening to this podcast, what I will say is if you're not feeling the episode, watch it again with that lens, because I'm going to do that probably tonight, tomorrow, and I'm going to report back next episode, and maybe we'll see if I uh, I feel differently about it. Okay, yeah. Uh, right now, I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good episode, uh, now that I'm sort of thinking about it more, but as I was watching it, I think a lot of the intentionality went over my head, for sure. It's still a good episode, you know? Yeah, I think I think one thing that we're going to determine as we go through the show is that I think even when Ultra Q, the original, is at its weakest, I think it is still a very strong television series. Um, and I think one thing we didn't mention before we move on, um, and you could be, I could be mistaken on this, but this was an original suit that they made for this one, right? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I would really like to look at its designs with the sort of read that I have on that monster now and see if there's some sort of aesthetic sort of choices that I can poke at yeah. and go like, ah, oh, maybe that is what the point is. I I'm, I think I might have a hidden empathy for Pegula because here's what I'll say. I, I sit here dunking on this episode, but this 
had an original suit. I can tell That's you really right cool. now they have. A, it is a really good suit. It is a really strong suit. It has a lot of really cool charm points. I really like the tusks. That It's kind of like a blend of like a Godzilla and a seal, or like a walrus. It's very cool looking. And it has these big, like, fuzzy, scaly feet. It is, it is an abomination that I really am fascinated by. I don't know if they've made any Sophobie of it, but I really, I, I really like it. <laughs> All right, Pegula, you may have a home on my desk in the near future, my little man. <laughs> um, but that's Pegula. It is, it, is a, it is an all right episode that may be better than we're giving it credit for right now, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We'll talk about that later. We have another episode of Ultra Q to talk about. Preston, I want to point out that you were so right. Going up to this episode, we were like, yeah, we're probably just going to speed through Pegula and then uh, get right over to the other episode. And that is exactly what we did, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> so, Preston, tell me a little bit about episode six. Episode six, grow up, little turtle. Um, <laughs> grow up, little turtle is about a young boy who has a pet turtle. And he is constantly telling tall tales to his teacher. And his teacher kind of warns him that, you know, if you, you gotta you got to stop telling these tall tales. But sometimes these tall tales have a hint of truth in them. Um, he witnesses mm -hmm. a bank robbery and tries to tell the teacher, but the teacher doesn't believe him because, you know, he's a, he's a tall tale teller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's what we're going to stick with. <laughs> um, but, um, I love it. Uh, he chases the, the uh, bank robbers, uh, gets kidnapped by them, and eventually his turtle becomes a massive turtle. And his massive turtle takes him to the Dragon Palace, where he meets a princess in the sky. And the princess and him are playing around and, 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 and swinging, and he's making a, a nuclear bomb at one point, but it explodes on him. And uh, there's a dragon that looks a lot like Manda, because it is Manda. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, comes back and tells, tells his family and the teacher, hey, hey, I went to the Dragon Palace and I saw the princess and I did all this stuff. And they're like, uh, yeah, you're a liar and, uh, you gotta stop lying. And, uh, he turns into <laughs> an old man. And that is the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I think you nailed it. <laughs> I think that's the episode. No, that is uh, the episode. So, so Preston, going into this, you were not super familiar with the Japanese myth that this came from, right? No, not at all. Like when, uh, when you told me it after we watched it, I went, "Oh, this makes so much sense now." Yeah. So it's, it's this, this, I'm really glad that I did that because I have this tendency, Preston, to be like, oh, it's like this thing, you know about this, right? And the person is like, has a, has a gym from the office moment of like looking at the camera, like, what the fuck are they talking about? This story comes from a fable. I will simplify it. It is essentially about a little boy who takes a turtle down to the sea or down to the bottom of the sea. And he goes to what you could approximate to be an Atlantis-like kingdom. That is the Dragon Palace. He has the coolest party ever. The party lasts 
like millions of years basically and he loses track of time and he stays young forever and he meets a beautiful princess and he makes a bunch of friends and his new life under the sea is great and the princess eventually says hey you have to go back now and I'm going to give you this box and if you take this box don't open it because it's the only way people will know that this was real but if you open it It'll turn you into all of the time. It'll, it'll age you all of the years that you spent down here. So that is the myth that this episode is engaging with. Okay, okay. Well, first off, the first thing I want to say before we get to anything is this episode is shot so well. Beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. so, so beautiful. It's so oh, yeah. wild and inventive with its camera shots. And its angles, what it when it goes in for zooms, what it it'll stop and play like um, single frames after single frames in quick succession. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh, just a really visually never dull episode. No, yeah, absolutely. There is one shot that really stuck with me. That was some like something out of a Buster Keaton movie almost. You have this kid on the rooftop of his school and it does an immediate pan from where he's standing down the building and then when you get to the bottom he's running out the like the the bottom front door and mm-hmm. like a few seconds have passed, right? There's no way that this child could have realistically run that fast with his little baby legs. And so it's this condensing of time and using a cut to make the passing of time seem like a seamless thing without any sort of digital trickery. And this, I need to, we just keep coming back to this Preston, but I'm going to say it. This was on television. This was on television. Oh, I mean, I it, bring in film quality to television, I think, seemed to be A.G. Supraya's specialty. Um, he was bringing in a lot of directors that really seemed to know what... I mean, like we we've said before in previous episodes and this episode, a lot of them had previous uh, work in as additional directing or assistant directing for some of the best tokusatsu films of the era. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find anything on uh, Haru. Oh, sorry, Haru Harunosuke Nakagawa as far as directing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did find that his daughter. And Nakagawa um, was in uh, was an actress that not only uh, had a pretty pretty fruitful career in the eighties and nineties was uh, one of the stars of a little film called Godzilla versus King Ghidorah nineteen ninety one. Oh, that is so cool, right? So that tie that that lineage. That is incredible. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Cool. Thanks for doing that research, though, because I didn't find that myself. Like, that's, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I had to oh, do wow. some digging. But uh, uh, as far as I... In the family, you know? In the family. That's incredible. I, I think that, like, something that really struck me, too, like, with the bringing the film people in, like, and unfortunately, like, with the the directorial credit of the director being sort of limited... Like, it's impossible to know how much of this was just his own, like, 
his own creative lilt and then who were the who was the cameraman who was the who were the rest of the crew who was responsible for a lot of the wild camera choices in that was it the director or were was it someone else along the way was it a was it a melting pot of all of those creatives right and when you have something like this that is such a tremendous episode where the director you go on letterbox this guy didn't direct a movie I, I, i can't find one imdb letterbox anywhere he directed ultra q and that's all i can really find so was he a like this just wild auteur that only did this like one or this one thing and then kind of fucked off and did other stuff or were there other people that are responsible for a lot of the camera work in this episode i don't know that i would like to do more research but the direction of this one you said preston very astutely like subaraya wanted to bring cinema to tv but what I think is very interesting is that these days we have this idea, I think, in America that we have cinema on TV. It's like, oh, House of Cards, mm. that was cinematic, right? Succession, that was cinematic. This is like movie quality television. But I'm going to tell you, Preston, these shows, shot, reverse shot, sitting in a room, talking, expository, like spoiler-based bullshit. It's all the same fucking bullshit. It is all TV shows. It is all something that is made to just last and last and last and last. And it is not something that is actually challenging. To me, that is not cinema. That is not challenging. That is not art. That is not film. This this episode, this episode of Ultra Q in 20-ish minutes, this is film. This is art. Because it is taking influences from like French New Wave. It is taking influences from Italian films. It is taking influences from all sorts of other stuff and doing original stuff with it. And using it to make a goofy episode of a television show for Japanese families about a kid and his turtle that he grows to be human-sized. And that is one of the most remarkable things, I think. I think that is why you make art. Like, that's oh, why for you make sure. Things, no, I, like I that, right? wholeheartedly agree. It's, it's, this is one of those episodes that kind of bring you back in and go, oh, this is why this show is special. Like, it's so unique. It's so different. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, why? Yeah. What sets it apart from other television shows? Um, no, I I loved every second of this one. This is one of this might be also one of my favorites. Um, going in, yeah. This is Mammoth Flower. Oh, for sure. Neck and neck for they're me. they're just both so good. Um, and then also this Absolutely. one was written by Masahiro Yamada again. Yeah, so he he's at it again, and I think he brings the sauce this episode. And so this is where I come back around and say, yes, Masahiro Yamada is one of the most interesting like Japanese like screenwriters, and I don't know if he actually did like any directing, additional director or anything, but he is a magnificent screenwriter, and. I don't know if you ever get a chance to dig into any more of his films. Obviously, I I would strongly recommend it. Let's just put it that way. What did you think of the special effects in this one? I thought the special effects were tremendous, but also very spooky at points. So there's two things I wanted to point out. When Taro goes to meet the dragon princess, she is in an embodiment of like sky ocean in one kind of fell swoop. It is like a watery abyss that is made out of clouds, kind of. So you have this at the bottom of the sea womb-like vibe, but it also feels like he's kind of in heaven, which represents, I think, what this episode is, which mm-hmm. is a blending of myth, right? It is 
it is Mamataro, but it is also the boy who cried wolf. And it is like the East meets West. I hate to use such a pat phrase, but that is what this is. It is a Japanese meets European myth making. And that comes together in this beautiful set where you have a watery heaven-like place. And I think it is really just aesthetically astonishing. And the other thing, Preston, I fucking hated this turtle. Oh my God. <laughs> when this turtle got big, when this turtle got big, and he was human size. It was like, I, I, first of all, props to the suit actor. Don't know who the suit actor was, but whoever was writhing around in that skin man, slender man suit with a turtle shell on, like a Master Roshi shell on, like hats off to you, scared the shit out of me decades later because that was really cool. Oh, yeah. No, I it, it, it had a very surrealist quality to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, surrealist. That whole episode is very surreal. I think that, like, a lot of the effects work actually comes from the camera making up for, like, like, there's not, I don't think there's, like, as much elaborate suit work or effect work in the previous episodes. And so you have this camera work make up for it. Camera work that I should add, if you go watch a Hideaki Anno movie, especially Shin Ultraman, or Shin Ultraman, Shin Ultraman. It's an Ultraman who only kicks with his shin. A Shin Ultraman, <laughs> he... <laughs> you look at the way that this dude shoots things and how fast his cameras move and how the angles that he likes to use, and it's you understand that he likes Ultra Q, and you understand that he probably likes this episode a lot because a lot of the camera work here reminds me of Anno's films. Oh, for sure. And I, I'm curious if, because I know Anno's greatly affected, uh, or was greatly inspired by um, a specific Japanese director that worked on Ultraman. I'm blanking on his name. I'll, I'll probably bring it back once uh, we have episode four. But, um, yeah, uh, a director that was really influenced by the French New Wave. And I'm wondering if he was also influenced by this episode as well. Because it does have that wild camera play that Anno loves so much. I um, hundred uh, percent. I I do want to also circle back and talk about the speckled Amanda suit or Amanda puppet. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was do. such a surprise. The dragon comes up and in the dragon palace, and I went, "Oh, that's Amanda." And Manda's from uh, a film called Atragon, which I adore. I adore Atragon. It's one of the best anti-war films that Ishiro Honda's ever made. Um, I I constantly tell people to give Atragon oh, a shot. Um, I don't know if I have seen Atragon. The more that you're telling me about it, I like... And you're telling me Manta. I know I've seen Manta before, but like I, I don't know if I've seen Atragon. What's what's the deal with it? So Atragon is about a um, a Japanese uh, general who kind of forms his own private military and forms a and has a machine called the Atragon or the the Gotengo. Uh, that's just a submarine with a drill on it. Uh, at the same time, this place called moo that is once was kind of like an atlantis sunk to the bottom of the earth or it's the bottom of the ocean comes back up and they're like we're going to take over earth and we're going to take over japan and this is our dominion and the japanese government turns to this guy who has a private military and this dude is like 
I just solely <laughs> in love with the idea of imperialism and loves the empire and all this. And uh, one of the other characters is like, okay, but the empire is gone and it failed and it didn't work. And, but we need your help. We need you. We need the Gotenga. We need to fight the Moo. And uh, it's ultimately about the feudalism of imperialism and the feudalism of war and that ultimately people who follow this I, this ideology will self-destruct it will they it will tear apart their families will tear apart themselves and it's yeah. a fantastic film i i watched it uh i watched it english dubbed of all things and i even out of that english dub i got out of it such a fantastic movie um, I need to watch the Japanese. So was it one of the ones that got dubbed and brought over to like American drive-ins in the mm-hmm. 50s, 60s? Oh, yeah, no? yeah, yeah. And okay, cool, it, cool. It, it carries the, the theme of the movie really well. Uh, I if So I awesome. can say the dub is serviceable. But um, I if you can watch in Japanese, watch Japanese. It's, uh, it's Of course, always. Always. Um, but yeah, uh, it was just so nice to see Manda again. Manda has... The, what's cool about Manda is Manda had five or six puppets miniatures suits just different things there was constantly different types of uh effects used to make bring manda to life and uh in atragon and it was just nice to see an old friend like amanda appear in this episode and uh i really appreciated that Absolutely. i anytime i see uh ag subaraya go into the Toho Studios to recycle some old suit or some old prop um, from the Godzilla days just puts a big old smile on my face. And you know, I I keep bringing up uh, classical Japanese art and I think that's because it's just, it was part of my minor and I think it is at the core of how I interrogate everything I watch. It's it's not just I'm watching wow cool movies from Japan. It's like I spent four years along with the other thing I did sort of trying to understand why the media that I like has the ethos and the production methods it does. So this goes back, this recycling, it like goes back to like Bunraku. It is this idea of a puppet, a thing that is made to represent life, in this case, a suit that has like ornate craft work on it. This is a work of art itself. Making the thing, making the destruction and making the destroyer is the art. And making sure that that doesn't get lost, like Hoggle in a suitcase from Labyrinth only to be found in a thrift shop decades later, or like the original suits from Mutant Turtles. Instead, you know, the people who made these suits, when they were being made, when they were done with them, looked at them, dusted them off and said, what else can this be? What else can this represent? How else can this speak to everyone who's watching it? And it is because it goes back to this tradition, I think, of, and this is not me going like, wow, Japanese tradition, but it is a true philosophy in terms of making art. Do not waste. Preserve, reuse, yeah. revere. That is like part of the craft work, and that is part of why I think it's recycled. Also, it's cheap. <laughs> yes, yes. I have to too. say, it's cheap. Also it keeps money down. <laughs> It's, 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 you could wax philosoph- philosophical about it all day, and that's absolutely true. It's also cheap. <laughs> so, um, I, I love this episode. Uh, I, I thank you for telling me about Atragon. I had no idea. And I, I, yeah, I, 
Preston, Ultra Q keeps getting better and better, I gotta say. I watch an episode and I'm like kind of mid on it and I can talk about it and then I end up liking it. And I can't say that about many shows. Oh, for sure. No, Ultra Q is the gift that keeps on giving. Is the gift that keeps on giving. But you know, what is the gift that keeps on giving as well? Taking a break sometimes. We all need to take a breather. We all need to take a break. And today, this is where we do that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm pretty sounds pr- like a plan. Sounds like a plan. So I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with where we are. I'm pretty happy with what we talked about. And hey, if you're listening, we hope you are too. So I'm Madeline Blondo. You can find me on Twitter at VHSvich. You can also find me on Blue Sky at Mad's House. Right now I have a piece about Saints Row 4 that just came out at Paste, and I also have a piece in the upcoming Doom at 30, I believe it's called. Yes, Doom at 30. That is on Kickstarter from NoXP Publishing. It has 19 days left in the project to back it. I am writing a piece about Doom 3. If you are interested in that piece being written, hey, it has to get funded for me to write it. So go pitch that a few bucks. So tell me, t- tell them a little about you, Preston. What do you got going on? Hey. Uh, I'm Preston. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Robotechnology. Um, I also have another podcast called Not a Bad Kaiju, where I talk to my friend Neil about uh, different Godzilla movies, Ultraman movies, just Tokusatsu movies in general. Um, there's episode one out, but um, and you can find it uh, on the front page of my Twitter. But uh, I more listens would be great and uh i have plans on doing a godzilla final wars episode soon that's hype that's hype i cannot wait to listen to that i cannot wait to see what else you do uh while we are working on this and i cannot wait to keep working through this so hey let's take that rest let's take that break and i will see you again next time how's that sound all right sounds good all right stay fresh ultra cuties Bye. bye